Welcome to Superhero Leadership, the podcast that explores outstanding leadership through the lens of some of the most successful superhero leaders in business, sports, politics, the military, and public service. This podcast is for anyone who aspires to great leadership. Our host, Peter Cuneo, has experienced superhero leadership throughout his life and career. From serving as a naval officer in the Vietnam War to being the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, Peter has completed seven business turnarounds in consumer products, media, and in entertainment, and served on the boards of many public and private enterprises, often as chairman. Drawing from his list of what he considers 32 essential qualities and characteristics for great leaders, Peter offers actionable takeaways you can implement into your own life and career today. Here's Peter to introduce his guest. Our guest today has had an extraordinary leadership career in consumer products, media, and entertainment. Our guest worked for the Walt Disney Company for 20 years. The first 10 years were spent in the United States in a series of assignments with increasing responsibility as a vice president of marketing and sales. And then in 2010, she was promoted and asked to relocate to Europe as executive vice president and chief marketing officer for Disney's business in EMEA. E-M-E-A stands for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Suddenly, she was charged with the responsibility for 40 different countries. I think about 40 different cultures. Each a unique opportunity for brand development, integrated marketing, and talent building. With this geographical challenge, she had 20 direct reports with a total marketing team of about 300 people. It's also fair to say some of these cultures were not used to seeing women in senior positions in business. When she left Disney, EMEA Brands' revenues totaled $21 billion for the company. She has also been a busy board member. For Disney, she served on the board of Euro Disney's theme park based in France, and she also served on Disney's Magical Cruise Company board. Her boards outside of Disney currently include ElectroCore, a medical technology public company. ElectroCore markets a non-invasive device to treat migraine headaches and PTSD. She also has a seat as one of the trustees on the board of Yale New Haven Hospital. I'd like to welcome my dear friend, Trisha Wilbur. Trisha, how are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Peter. Trisha, we do these interviews, episodes with leaders around the world. And I have to say that given the challenges that you had at Disney, I don't think we've had anyone on with us to talk about the tremendous challenge of diversity in people, in cultures, and so on, that someone like you had to do in your position. We often ask our, ask our guests uh, to talk a little bit about their life growing up because we have found that people who end up being extremely effective leaders have some things in common. And one of them is their life growing up, the way they were raised, where they lived, added to, I think, their interest in life and, and their ability and willingness to take on very distinct challenges in leadership. Can you tell, talk a little bit about where you came from? Sure. I grew up in Connecticut, just outside of New Haven, to an Italian-American family. I was the fifth of six children. 
where family was the core of our lives. When I was born, I lived in a three-family house with my aunt and uncle and their children and my grandmother and grandfather on separate floors. I was quite young when we left there and we moved to the suburbs out of New Haven. And so we grew up with not a lot. My dad worked, my mom worked at home with us. And we, but we had a wonderful time. We had Sunday lunch. We had a lot of fun. But as the fifth of six children, I, I didn't get a huge amount of attention because there were many competing priorities in the household. You know, I was five years younger than my next sibling and 10 years older than my younger sibling. So I spent a lot of time on my own. My mom didn't have a car, um, so I didn't get to drive to friends' houses after school. And so I did a lot of reading, a lot of imagining. And I think that's where a lot of my ideas about how I'm going to make it in the world came from. And But I was given the opportunity to do whatever I liked. And I think one of the biggest gifts I was given was from my dad that when I went off to college to Brown University, my dad gave me one piece of advice. And he said, learn and study whatever you want. This is the only time in your life that you're going to be free to be able to do that. And that's as long as you learn how to think and how to communicate, you will make it a life. And this is someone who never went to university, but I think had such a profound effect on my life and giving me that freedom that I then chose to study Chinese history, which had absolutely nothing to do with what I then carried on in the rest of my life. I'm struck by your your dad telling you that just just be a great student, look and learn and understand and experience and grow rather than you should be this, you should do that, you should be like your cousin, you should be whatever, which we still have an awful lot of, unfortunately, in, in our culture, particularly in the U.S. And it's too bad because I tell young people all the time, do not let someone else define success for you. You don't have to be an investment banker if you want to be an artist. Yeah, you know, or, absolutely. Or whatever. It's it's very important. And unfortunately, because we have a lot of over-parenting today, that, that's another fact. Parents are telling their kids what they should be, where they should be, what they sh- should be doing, what sports they should play. And the kids today are not getting those experiences of learning their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I have two 20-something-year-old children who are new into the job market. And my conversations with them is, you're going to live till you're 100. You have the opportunity to try things and learn and fail and just get out there and try and see what you like and see what you don't like and start to define who you are based on your experience. And so it's giving them that freedom to be able to do that, but you still have to pay the rent. Tricia, we also talk about our 32 essentials of superhero leadership. And one of the ones that jumps right out to me that, again, I think it had a very strong impact on your success, particularly overseas, is, is our number five, which is try to avoid all prejudices regarding leadership styles. There is strength in diversity. I've said before on the show that the greatest gift my parents actually gave me was that we were raised with zero prejudices. We never heard a single word about some other 
people or person because of their color, religion, ethnic background, sexual orientation. We never heard any of that. It was all, it was simply, there's good people and bad people in the world, <laughs> figure it out. I think diversity was important in your childhood, but you were, it sounds like you were able to take that experience and use it very effectively when you went overseas for Disney. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was a huge challenge and, a, and an incredible learning experience. So I quite naively moved to London and didn't really appreciate the differences in culture. So while I was with the same company, I expected the way that you worked with your teams or with your peers or with your superiors was going to be the same because it was the same company. And I remember sitting in my office in London and you know, each of my direct reports would come in, those based in London, and they would have a PowerPoint deck and they would be taking me through what they do. And the way that I operate, I ask a lot of questions. And so I would start to ask some questions and the response would be, if you want me to do that, we can do it. We can change it. And so I realized that's not what I was doing. I was actually just asking a question, but culturally, if your boss asks a question, you are actually saying that you want them to change things. And so I had to adjust the way that I interacted in order to be able to have the conversation. And I was learning as much as they were learning. And until they got to know me over time, then we were able to have those robust conversations. But when I first started out, it was incredibly difficult because I had to change how I entered and how I led and had an organization and built a team. So that was certainly one experience. And then you add in the 40 countries, which have very different cultures uh, associated with them. We used to, obviously, we reported back to California and we would report all our numbers and our results as EMEA as one number for EMEA. And they would ask us questions and we'd have to go back and say, you have to remember EMEA is not a country. It is 40 different cultures. It has different personalities. It has from looking at children's developmental skills, they happen differently in each of those countries based on the family and how that works, based on the culture and the political and the social environment. So there were so many differences in each of these countries in terms of how your teams were organized, how they worked culturally, how you communicated, how direct you can be, how you needed to be a little bit softer, how you needed to encourage. So it it was a, a really fascinating process. And then that transcended from the people, which was a big part of it, to the brands that we managed. For example, when we purchased, when Disney purchased Star Wars, um, what we realized was that many of the Star Wars films pre-Disney were never released in Italy. And that's because people in Italy saw Star Wars as science fiction and they don't watch science fiction. So we now had a culture in a country that 
didn't even know anything about Star Wars. So how we approached that marketing and that release of that film and those consumer products was totally different than, for example, Germany, who absolutely hands down loved anything that was Star Wars. And so you you have to have a different approach in each of these countries. So when we rolled up the plan and presented it back to the U.S., we had to break it down. And it's not the same for each of the countries and each of the brands. So it was a huge challenge. It's a huge matrix Rubik's cube in your head, in your organization that you're constantly adjusting to be able to deliver the results to lead people and to have an incredible opportunity there. I might remind our listeners about some of the brands that you're talking about. Uh, talking about the Rubik's Cube. Let's let first of all, as you mentioned, there was Star Wars. There was also Pixar, which was another Disney acquisition. And you had the Cars franchise, the Toy Story franchise. And of course, close to my heart, you had Marvel. And you really, you really came to Disney just as we sold Marvel mm-hmm. to Disney in 1999. Yep. So we didn't really overlap, but you had Avengers, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, many other, and many Disney brands from things that go way back to Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Disney Princesses, Frozen, Winnie the Pooh, The Lion King. So 40 countries, 40 different cultures. <laughs> 40, I don't know how many different brands, all of which had to be handled probably differently, as you pointed out in many cases. My background is doing turnarounds and all of my turnarounds, it was usually an international element to the businesses. Mm -hmm. And I did travel a lot. And I did often experience cultural differences that I had to learn, particularly in the Asian cultures. I remember my first meeting, negotiating a deal in Japan. And the word in Japanese for yes is hi. And you will see if you watch Japanese movies, a lot of hi. And I thought, oh, we have a deal. <laughs> but I've learned later that, that in the Japanese culture, hi means I understand. It does not mean I agree. <laughs> Took me a little while to get that one. Another example I had in China, where the businesses are very family oriented. And it is very common. And I had learned this for a while when I was negotiating a very big deal um, in actually Beijing. But it was a family business. And it's very common for when you go to Chinese restaurants, you'll see round tables a lot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people sitting at a round table. And there's a cultural reason for that. And that is that they view that as mixing family and business and what have you together. And typically you do not talk about business at all at that table. It's all personal and so on. It's getting to know you, your family, get to know them and their family. And they'll often have quite a few family members who are in the business or not at the table. And I was competing against a very large company here in the United States for this particular deal. But they had never done their research or understood the Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. And what they had was a lot of young MBAs sitting at the table, constantly talking about business and why they should partner with them and not me. I was the only one from my company at the table and I was showing pictures of my grandchildren. Okay. And so on. The others were MBAs from Ivy League schools 
talking about how they were bigger than us, better than us. And they were, by the way. The competition was clearly on paper would have made a stronger partner. And I still remember when they finally announced who they're going with, the look on the faces of the MBAs who could never understand how I could get the deal. So these things are important. When I got to EMEA, I was married and I had two children. And so we moved from the U.S. to London. And my husband at the time was working, had a business back in the States, but dialed his business back to move to London. And when I sat at the board table of the uh, EMEA leadership team, I was one of very few women and probably out of 12 to 14 individuals, there was one or two of us. And I was the only one that actually moved, relocated. There were others that relocated, but they were men who had done that. So it was a very big difference sitting at that board table, trying to move your family as the mother and spouse and running a a business that was across many time zones and trying to have the adjustment of young children into school, trying to go to the grocery store and walking around trying to find eggs and they're on the shelves, not in the cooler. So there was just so many levels of it that from the practical to the decision-making to the just being in a room of all men is a very different culture than what I was used to back in the States where it seemed to be a bit more, just the way it laid out, it was a bit more diverse in that sense. So there was lots of learnings in that in that space. So you're one of the few examples of someone who has broken through the glass ceiling for women. It's hard enough in the United States. It's gotten better, but I think we still have a way to go in the U.S. But when we go overseas, it's just that much worse. I have to ask you, how did you do it? What was it? Was it conscious? Was it just I'll go with the flow and go with my instincts? Or how did you do it? Some of it was just, again, naivete. I just went in and did what I was supposed to do and didn't really think about it until you had different situations that came up. And in those times, you did have to have the explanation. I became on a very small group that Bob Iger put together of diversity inclusion across the entire company. And I represented the international organization within that to make major changes in the company around women in the workplace. And one of my counterparts in the EMEA region was an American and it was a, a man. And he had a team of primarily women. And he really sees himself as someone who has, he, he treats everyone equally in that sense. And I would have seen him that way. And we were talking about unconscious bias and with the whole organization. And he said, oh, I don't have it. I have a team of all women. And one day he came into my office and he said, I get it. I get it, Trisha. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I had a call that there's an opportunity in another region in Asia. And would I have anyone on my team who would be willing to relocate there for six months to a year? And I went through the people and I said, her husband does this, so she's not able to go. She has two kids. She's not able to go. Went through all the reasons and realized that if they were men, I would have never 
even thought about not asking them. So I opened up the opportunity to those and one with two kids ended up taking the opportunity. And he said, without that sort of push of understanding that unconscious bias, I would have never done that. And you're constantly pushing it from the 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 consumer products and what the princess brand means to the workplace. You you have to be aware of it and cognizant of what's happening and how people are making decisions or judgments. And again, they're not all done conscious and but but it does hold people back and doesn't give them the comfort and the opportunity to do it. So, Teresa, I, I have to say, and we talk about superhero leadership. And I think it's safe to say that you are a candidate to play Wonder Woman, even though it's not a Marvel character, DC <laughs> character. I just don't know how you did it. Thank you. I'm not sure how either. Sometimes you just go and do it. But my kids would re- say that I was more like Black Widow. And the reason for that is obviously when you um, come into an organization and there were lots of business reasons we were going through a huge transformation, we had to change the organization, which meant, you know, some people did, lost their jobs, which was not, I t- did not take lightly at all and, and really felt the challenge with that. But my kids would ask me when I came home, so who did you fire today, mom? And it was not something that I was really proud of, but certainly one of the things that that you had to do. One of the other areas that we talk a lot about is the importance of communications in leadership, consistent communications, uh, regular communications, informal communications. And when we talk about communications, Number 13 on our, our list of uh, essentials reads as follows. Technology can't dominate communications. Face-to-face is best. Understand culture in other countries by being there if possible. You could not be in 40 countries at once. How did you handle communications? It, it is difficult because not only do you have different cultures, but a lot of times you have different languages. And so many of the individuals in each of these countries, the English was their second language, although that's how business was transacted. And so you had to, technology makes that transition or tran, more difficult. So at the beginning, I spent a lot of time traveling and spending time and finding that face-to-face with, with the teams. So that in the longer term, I didn't have to do as much of that because you built that connection and you built that relationship and you understood it. But I think that whole communication is a really interesting. When you have an organization, you're leading an organization of 300 people. You can't do face-to-face with all of them. You can do town hall meetings. You can do things like that. But then you have to create a communication with your leadership team and maybe that next level below so that they are also communicating and hearing and listening and delivering and bringing back that information. So I would do a large meeting based in London with a a big portion of my organization, but then we would live stream it, which was new at the time, if you think about nine, 10 years ago to each of the countries. And so they were watching it, listening at the same time. And there would be big, broad messages in addition to business messages that I would be communicating in that. And they would be able to ask questions. And I really 
felt that it was important that there were no questions that they couldn't ask. And if they couldn't be answered, I was honest. Or if the answer was something that I know wasn't popular, it's about being honest that this is a hard decision to make or a hard strategy to to implement, but that we're all feeling it and we're all in having experiencing that pain, if you will, together. And I learned something in my very first job at Southern New England Telephone here in Connecticut that from a leader who told this story, the woman who started the body shop, I can't remember her name, and she would go around the world looking for products for her or ingredients for her products. And she was in Africa and she went to this village and she understood the birthing experience. A woman who was pregnant would go into a birthing hut to be to give birth to the child. The father would sit outside dressed as a woman. So think about that. Then they would tie a string around the toe of the mother giving birth to the private parts of the father. So every time she had a contraction, he felt the pain. And as a management or leadership lesson, if you don't understand the detail, you can't feel the pain of those around you. But yet, as a leader, you can't live in that detail. You have to be up and be able to do strategy. So one of the things that I was told I had the ability to do, and I didn't do this consciously, was to be able to understand the detail, but rise up and give the strategic direction. And it was getting the credibility for understanding the detail from the team to being able to deliver the strategy that I think allowed me to lead such a diverse organization and a diverse amount of businesses. You know, we've talked about, okay, Rubik's Cube has, as we say, the X, Y, and Z axis, but there's another axis that we haven't talked about as well. And that's this, I'll call it the atmosphere of change in a business. Mm. And more and more now we have change happening all the time. You can't really write a, a job description that lasts more than a couple of months because everybody's job constantly changes. When I came into the business world about 100 years ago, we could write a long range, a three-year long range <laughs> plan and we updated it once a year. Now there are really almost no long range plans because so much is changing. And Trisha, I know you've, in the past, in talks, you've talked about living in the world of gray, as you Mm -hmm. call it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Living in the world of gray is a concept that sort of came to me because I was transforming a business, an organization, a culture at the same time that technology was rapidly changing And our consumers were rapidly changing. And so what I realized is that there's two continuums that we we dealt with. And one was this continuum of being able to not have that specific job description, as you mentioned, Peter, but really being a matrixed organization, being able to think across the business as opposed to your own individual area thinking more globally. And when I say globally, not necessarily about geographic, but holistically about a business. 
And at the same time, you had this rapid speed of change. And so what you put on paper today would be different. And consumers were changing how they consumed media. Kids were growing up faster. All that kind of stuff was happening at the same time. I have an in, I'm like a junkie for that. I have a personality that loves, that thrives off that. But what I realized is that not everybody does. And that doesn't mean they're not a good employee or a good part of a team, but that you have to help them manage across this continuum because it's stressful. So while for me, this was like got me excited and up in the morning and juiced and ready to go, for some people, it paralyzed them. So how do you lead through this world of gray, this murkiness and provide the clarity, but allow for the change and not have people halted in their cement shoes in terms of this is the way it's going to work? And that's a huge challenge, and but a lot of fun. And I think we did it. and. And it's trying to find the team that also embraces that and is able to do it. Great. We've talked so much about how busy you were, all these different challenges that you had. But one of the pieces of advice we give to potential leaders or current leaders, one of our superhero leadership essentials is number 28, find quiet hours to escape and detach to solitude, to family and to friends. Did you have any quiet hours <laughs> whatsoever for that 10-year period? I, I did. I, I did, but I had to work at it. I had two children, and so that also, it wasn't like I could just detach it. But they provided that ability to just have to get outside myself and not take the calls and not look at the emails. And so they provided that. I was really blessed by my boss, Diego Lerner, who was the head of EMEA. And because when I moved there, one of the pieces of advice he gave me was to get my family settled. Because if your family's not settled, you will never feel comfortable. And having that person who understood that really helped quite a bit. I love to cook. I love to read. I would find time. I took French baking classes for an afternoon on a Saturday. And there's, I'm not thinking about Disney Princess or Cars or Winnie the Pooh or the Avengers because I'm worried about whether my yeast is going to rise. And, and so you need that break from all of that stuff to, to make it happen. Is it easy? No. Um, you really have to make a conscious effort to, to do it. So when I was traveling a great deal, of course, I was based in the U.S. going overseas and I would go to Europe uh, for a week at a time. And uh, what I learned early on was that I actually just couldn't take a red eye to Europe, run in immediately to meetings, make important decisions, in a, in a, you know, tired and so on. And that in that time, I would have to carve out for myself a half a day at a museum or whatever form that took just for me to get, get my brain cleaned up. And, and that worked very well for me. And one day I was in London and I was walking down a street called Mayfair mm -hmm. and there was this very interesting wine shop there. Hedonism. Called Berry Brothers oh, in Berry Rudd. Brothers. Okay, yep. Across the street later mm -hmm. on, I discovered Justerini and Brooks. Yep. And I went in, I knew almost nothing about wine. <laughs> 
And these, this wine shop, the, the room was 300 years old. They had no wine. They gave you a little book, a catalog of what they carried. But I was able and got in the habit of spending an hour at a time in just a reading Brooks because the salespeople were very happy to educate me on wines in general. I could ask them anything. It was not a, they didn't think any question was stupid. Yeah, they liked my business too, admittedly, but they were really patient with me. And that's where I really started to appreciate fine wine. Now, Tricia, you and I are friends and I have the sneaking suspicion that you've probably been to Mayfair (laughs) and I'm aware that you enjoy a nice glass of fine wine, Mm -hmm. as I do. We do have that in common. And I think my point on talking about this, though, is just that you do need a hobby. And wine has become a hobby for yeah, me. Yeah. And we're both collectors. Mm-hmm. I plan to drink all my wine rather than resell it. I don't know about yeah. you. Of course, I will never be able to. But the point here is it doesn't have to be booze, but you need it. You need something you need that's some, a distraction, distraction, even for a couple of hours yeah. only. Um, but I ended up going to wine auctions. It's, and, it's, and it becomes what, a bit addictive in that sense, and th- in the collecting yeah, portion of yeah. it. It's fascinating, though. You talk about taking time. I had the other one where I made my trips as short as possible. But I would get up early in the morning in a city and walk for an hour and just go walk and see what was around me when it was quiet. And that was one of the things that that helped me through. I also love the fact that on the long, we had short plane rides to Europe, but I did a lot of travel from London to LA, and which is a very long flight. And I loved that there was no Wi-Fi on the plane. And that would be 10, 11 hours of no one bothering me, no one talking to me. I could read my book. I could sleep. It was just time to regroup. And so I, I used it that way. But I, I, you're right. You have to find something that absorbs and gets you out of yourself for as often as you can. Trish, this has been great. I really appreciate it. I have one last question for you. And let me read another one of our essentials. And it's the last one, actually. It's appropriate that this is the last of the 32. Number 32 is know when it's time to go. You put 20 years in at Disney. Yeah. 2018, $21 billion in revenue, but you knew when it was time to go. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, it was a complicated and very difficult decision in terms of making the decision to leave. And it was a lot more emotional than I, I thought it was going to be. But what happened was my family was really now mostly in the U.S. on the East Coast. My daughter was in university. My son was finishing high school here and boarding school. And so it was a lot of back and forth and it was a lonely existence in in London. And I had a ton of friends, but I missed my kids. I I missed my brothers and sisters. At that point, point, my parents had passed, but I just missed all of that. At the same time, Disney was making major changes. So they had just bought Fox. And and they were pivoting towards streaming. And I looked at it and I knew I wasn't going to have the type of job that I wanted in terms of the breadth and the scope that I might have had a senior job, but it would have been more defined and less expansive in its remit. And then the third opportunity was to move to L.A. And 
I didn't want to do that because that was just moving myself from my family to the other side. So I thought, you know what? It's time. It's time for me to go. So I raised my hand and I said, I think it's the right time. I left on amazing terms with lots of opportunities. I thought I wanted to go back into the corporate world and looked at a number of things. And none of those landed immediately. And then COVID hit and I realized, you know what? I really don't want to do that. And so someone had suggested to me a term about going plural where you're doing lots of things that take up the time. And so I'm doing that now, as you said, on the boards. And I also volunteer as a mentor in the local school system where I have a a little second grader that I meet with for 45 minutes a week. And we play and we color and we talk. And she has a special time with someone who's only about her. I get the ability to enjoy my children. They're over for dinner at least two to three nights a week or out to dinner when I didn't have that opportunity when I was working as much. So it's it's a different lifestyle. I'm loving it. And I look back fondly and with heartfelt at my career at Disney. It taught me so many things. And when you read that introduction, I thought who would be crazy enough to do that? But I did and I did it and I I wouldn't, I don't regret a minute of it. So that's great. Thank you. I think knowing when it's time to go, in my case, I do turnarounds and typically my time on the job has been about three years. And at that point, what you know if a turnaround is going to stick and you know that the place will not collapse if you leave. And I just found over time that I'm addicted to successful teamwork. Mm-hmm. There's something about and fixing things. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'm not good. I always say, and I really mean this, I'm, I wouldn't be good at running a, a well put together company. Yeah. And I do get calls or used to be CEO of companies like that. Yeah. And I would just simply say, listen, it's not for me. I'm going to be honest with you. I would mess it up. Yeah, I always say I don't want to make a difference around the margins. I want something that's going to be big and bold and hard and difficult. But now I love anything around the margins. I'm relaxed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Trisha. This has been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate you coming by. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. Trish is an impressive executive with supreme understanding of leadership. She knows how to modulate leadership depending on the employee, the team, the situation, and the culture. And here are a few things I hope you took away from our conversation. First, superhero leadership requires the ability to adapt and make tough decisions, even if they are unpopular. I think the second takeaway was the fact that effective communication in a global organization involves building relationships leveraging technology, and creating a feedback loop. Another takeaway was that leaders must find moments of solitude and relaxation to recharge and maintain a healthy work-life balance. There's always going to be stress for great leaders, and this is one of the ways to handle it. We also talked about embracing change and living in the world of gray, as Trish called it. This could be very challenging but necessary for success in a rapidly evolving business environment. And finally, knowing when it's time to leave a role or an organization. This is crucial for personal growth and finding 
new opportunities. One of the unique benefits of this podcast is your ability to make Peter a part of your leadership team. Peter's looking forward to sharing his experiences with fellow leaders and businesses of all sizes. If you have a particular business concern or challenge, Peter wants to help. So send your written or recorded question to Peter at shlpodcast.com. That's Peter at shl for superhero leadership podcast.com. Here is this week's question. Hi, Mr. Cuneo. My name is Lynn and I live in Dallas, Texas. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast and I've learned so much about leadership. One thing that stood out to me is when you mention there's less quality leadership in the world than at any time in human history. As a mother for this really struck me. I want my children to learn how to be strong leaders. So what can I do while they're young to help instill these qualities in them? Thank you. Lynn, thanks for your question. I frankly spent a lot of time thinking about the answers to these uh, because I am very concerned about the lack of leadership in the world. And I'm also concerned about how young people can learn leadership because there are a number of factors right now that are preventing young people from getting the instincts of leadership as they grow up. I think the biggest factor is that I believe that you learn leadership through face-to-face interaction with a diversity of other people in a diversity of situations, personal and professional. And I think learning from geographic diversity, like traveling and so on, is also very important. And in my conversations, I do have a long list of things that I recommend to young people, and I'm defining young people here as 30 and under. Experiences, etc., where they can learn and hopefully appreciate leadership. One of the things I say is in my talks is that even children who are four or five years old can learn leadership. And of course, the audience, frankly, is looking at me like I'm a little nuts. When they, I know what they want to say. They want to say there's no way someone that young can even be thinking about leadership. But my point is, it is important to start young people having experience in diverse situations as early in their lives as you can. And the example I give is take your four or your five-year-old to a country that does not speak English. Spend a week's vacation. And what happens is, The child emotionally, assuming it goes well, and I'm I'm sure with good parents and grandparents, it will go well. The child comes back with an emotional reaction. And the emotional reaction is, I went to this place. I don't remember the name of it. I didn't understand anything that anyone was saying. The food was different, but I liked it. Mom, dad, where are we going next year? One of the great hallmarks of superhero leaders that are successful is that they are very comfortable in alien environments. They're not thrown by an alien environment, by changing geographies or a problem pops up that is very new and different to them. And you can start kids off early by exposing them to alien environments and going in and, and over time they will become very comfortable. There are a couple of other things that I recommend for everybody in that 30 and under group, but particularly for kids. And that is the more, again, experiences with diversity and teamwork. So I highly recommend team sports. It doesn't matter if your child is athletic or not. 
I don't care if they are the least best athlete on the team. They will learn a lot from just working together with other people with a common goal. I actually like performing arts as well, but in the same vein. You're working, you may not be an actor or an actress, but you can pull curtains, you can paint sets. There's lots of things to do, but there's a special kind of a real, I think, pride when a play or a musical or whatever comes together and is, whether it's in elementary school or high school or wherever it is, that's another example of working together and meeting people with diverse backgrounds and so on. So those are a few of the examples. The other thing I do recommend to parents, and this is something that also gets a reaction from the audience, although less so now than it did years ago, I say, let your children fail. Now, we have a culture in the United States, and I think elsewhere, that's been developing over a number of years that I'm going to call over-parenting. And by the way, with the best of intentions, don't get me wrong, but they are basically trying to make a life for their kids where the kids never have a negative thought about themselves. But the truth is, this is where we learn. We learn from our little failures or big failures. We learn how to survive in life. It's very important for young people to learn their strengths and their weaknesses. In a way, life is very simple to cope. Learn your strengths and your weaknesses, and on your weaknesses, figure out whether you want to avoid or whether you want to work to get better, depending on the situation. I hope that helps, Lynn. That's it for this episode of Superhero Leadership. I want to thank Trish Wilbur for joining me, and I hope you will join me again the next time. Until then, stay focused, stay driven, and keep leading like a superhero with purpose, passion, and integrity. I'm Peter Cuneo. Hey, by the way, if you haven't gotten your free copy of the 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership, please go to our website at petercuneo.com.